pretty soon, most of us will be walking around with it. Yes, this week on Download This Show, COVID vaccine passports. How will they work? Will you be able to travel with them? Why are they different in every state? Plus, people are sending abusive messages via bank transfers. What exactly can we do about it, though? Uh, Facebook are trying to recalibrate their relationship with kids. And would you ever wear a headband that could calm you and your angsty brainwaves down? Well, stay right where you are because this is the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show and our guest this week is a software developer with Access Informatics, Peter Marks. Welcome back to Download This Show. Hey, it's great to be with you. And joining us from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Ariel Bogle. Welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. The pleasure is entirely mine. We are going to get into some fairly serious stuff today, but I just wanted to start with something curious. I'm going to call it curious. There is a headband, Peter Marks. Mm-hmm. that you can wear, that people, well, when I say people, the company, claims can make you calmer. And this is one of those things where when I see it, I go, is that dodgy science or is that real? So take me into it. What, what, what exactly are we talking about here? Well, there is some science in it. The headbands detect electrical activity from your brain just by connecting to your scalp, and they feed that back to you so that you can try to change that electrical activity. It's called biofeedback. Now, it does have a medical application. It's called an electroencephalogram, an EEG, and they're used by doctors to test for things like epilepsy or stroke. This used to be popular uh, in the 80s when uh, people tried to strengthen certain frequency brainwaves called theta waves, Mm. which are observed in people who are experienced at doing meditation. So they'd have a light or a meter or something that would show these hippocampal theta waves. They have a frequency of about 6 to 10 hertz, and they're also observed during REM sleep. So the idea was to try and set yourself into a position where you had lots of theta waves and less of the alpha waves. Now, the alpha waves are associated with aroused thinking, and so you want to try and lower the alpha, increase the theta, and it was kind of a way of getting to that meditation point without having to do years of training. So is it sound? Well, I guess so. I mean, the big new thing now in the modern era is that we have machine learning that can recognise these waveforms, whereas in the past it was done in a very simple sort of filter mechanism. So they probably could work. Are there other things like this, Ariel, that have been around before that people have used in, a, I guess, a commercial context? Well, there's a plenty of technology out there that claims to help you get calm, calm down. <laughs> I guess you'd put it in that sort of overall quantified self mm. uh, tech basket. So you can definitely track now how you sleep when you're entering REM state, things like that, through your phone or a wearable device. I would put all this stuff in the category of if it helps you, that's good, I guess. Um, <laughs> there is some science here. They're not just measuring like air. They are measuring brainwaves, hopefully, if you have a good piece of this tech. But in terms of what it can do for you, there is a risk here, I think, as other people have pointed out, that 
it kind of encourages you to think there is a normal state. And I think I could see a, a potential sort of cycle of anxiety building when you're wearing something like this and it's sensing that you are potentially anxious or in an agitated state and your attempt to sort of reverse that state becomes a source of anxiety in itself. Like for some people, that might be the kind of cycle you'd get into. Right. So you're sort of sitting there staring at app going, I can see my brainwaves and, and I'm not calm enough. I need to get calmer. Mm. How do I get calm? Because that would be the side effect of this this sort of act of quantified self is that you get this constant feedback of data that you become cognizant of that could potentially add to your own anxiety, Peter. That is fascinating. Well, and of course, this is all part of mindfulness, you know, making you, yourself conscious of the state of your body, your tension and things like that. And if you need a gadget to become mindful of your own state, then I think you're kind of missing the point of mindfulness. You should just be able to detect it yourself without needing or becoming dependent on this external machine. And, you know, a lot of brain activity, of course, is nothing to do with anything you can control. It's about, you know, how the what the autonomous that just runs your body and you're not really in control of that. So, you know, you're then starting to measure it. I mean, it's often been said that looking at an EEG from a brain is like listening to the ticking of a clock to work out how the clock works or what's wrong with the clock. It's, it's just, it's a very simplistic view. In this BBC article I was reading about these headbands, I thought it was pretty notable that they seem to be being used a lot by sports people, you know, professional athletes or, you know, athletes of some sort. And I guess in that context, athletes operating on a kind of professional level are already used to every part of themselves being quantified. Like how can they run, you know, microseconds faster? How can their pitch be a little more precise? And so uh, understanding your brain activity and its impact on performance, I guess, that makes a lot of sense. I think day to day, you know, I'm definitely not a psychologist, um, but I hope that I would be able to practice a kind of mindfulness that I can understand my body better and my sort of thought process without needing one of these bands because I'm not a professional athlete, don't need to understand exactly to precision what my brain waves are doing to my daily performance. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fidel is my name. Our guest this week, Ariel Bogle from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and software developer Peter Marks with Access Informatics. And can you send abuse through money? Well, it turns out you can. Uh, The Commonwealth Bank is about to turn on a new system that will stop people from sending abusive messages through their electronic payment system. Ariel, roll back for me because I think a lot of people might not know that this is even a thing that is done. Yeah. So basically when you transfer money, I mean, most people might have transferred somebody for a split meal or to pay a bill. You can probably remember the kind of boxes you fill out, you know, account number, BSB, the amount you want to send. But you can also generally add like a little note. This might be the place if you're transferring your rent, you'll be like aerial rent or something like this. But of course, anywhere you can add content, people will abuse it. And so the Commonwealth Bank, as well as um, other institutions, have noticed this sort of trend of people harassing or abusing people through these uh, sort of message section of the transferal process. So the Commonwealth Bank has detailed a series of incidents where people sent, you know, micro amounts, a dollar, 50 cents or something like 
this just so that they could send a threatening or harassing message to somebody. So obviously that matters a great deal in kind of family violence or harassment situation. I think, uh, you know, it's just part of this broader conversation we need to have about technology uh, whenever there is ability to send a message to somebody, whether it be uh, transferring money, a workplace app, uh, of course, social media as well. We need to be cognizant of the kind of content that can be sent and how that can be abused. And so, Peter, how exactly are they planning on stamping this out? Is it Are they just isolating certain words? How are they doing it? Yeah, so there's a lot of these messages. The Commonwealth Bank said that they removed 100,000 transactions in a three-month period last year. 229 unique senders were flagged as serious abusers. Westpac has noticed similar activity. They said they blocked 6,000 messages starting in January through to April. Now, the simplest system is just banning words, and the ANZ Bank said that they have a list of 319 words on their banned list. But, of course, that's not enough. The Bank of New Zealand said that they see messages not in just small payments, but they're seeing them as part of child support payments where the the, uh, abuser, the estranged partner, is having to send money to the other person and they're adding in a threat or uh, some sort of abuse. I mean, if you're in this situation, I guess you can block the abuser on your phone. You might be able to block them in email, on Facebook and Twitter, but this is another avenue of attack and you may actually need to get money from them, such as uh, child support and things like that. So, yeah, a, a simple word blocking thing isn't enough. As we know in China, where there's a lot of censorship in social media, that what happens is people will get around it by misspelling words. Or of course, if it's a, uh, a an ex-personal relationship, there may be things that they can say which are personal that wouldn't appear in just a list of words. So the Commonwealth Bank has introduced a system where they're starting to use machine learning, which has been trained on abusive text. There's long been a, a system of sentiment analysis that was used on Uh, for example, tweets to work out whether people liked a brand or not. So what they're doing is that they're using machine learning to look at all the messages and and basically flag ones. But of course, it's difficult because you don't want to have false positives. You know, there might be friends who are having a joke or something after a fun night out. You don't want to block that. And of course, if the senders know that they've got to get through some sort of filter, they'll modify their messages to try and be more subtle or, or, you know, try to get around it in those ways. Apart from New Zealand, are there other examples, Ariel, of of banks, financial institutions trying to tackle this around the world that are worth looking at? Well, there's plenty of new financial technology that lets people send money back and forth in new ways that kind of um, makes a sort of gamifies it or sort of makes a social media situation of it. I'm thinking about Venmo in the United States as kind of an an app that lets you send money to friends or family, but it also lets you kind of add a message and a... uh, creates a kind of news feed out of those messages. So notoriously, people wrote a lot of jokey content, a lot of provocative content. But of course, there's this uh, ability to abuse those systems too. It actually reminded me too of a story I wrote a few years ago. I talked to a number of women who had been in family violence situations who had to report to schools that the kind of school system, technology systems that were allowing teachers to communicate with parents, say sending home, sending a photo of like the kids art project Hmm. to the app and letting parents see it was yet another way that uh, partners, uh, Mm. even if they had uh, been estranged or even had legal kind of blocks on contact of showing the partner that they were still watching them by liking posts. So really you need to look at a really broad vector of behaviour that is not quite as clear as sending a 
explicitly abusive text or an explicitly threatening text. It's a whole range of behaviour. Even just the sending of one dollar without a comment from a partner who has been abusive could be just a way of them reminding you that they are cognizant of you, that they might be tracking you. These kinds of behaviours too need to be looked at. Are there technical solutions that are available for apps like that, Peter? Well, I think that the ComBank is onto something that machine learning is this new, well, not new really, but the technology that's become practical in recent years. It can be trained on a large corpus of abuse. We know that uh, Google, for example, has um, a large amount of trained models for, for uh, detecting you know, messages which are not appropriate in one way or another, and that can that model can be updated over time. But this is a very difficult thing to do. It's it's a war, and as I said, uh, as we've seen in China, people can use words that rhyme with something, or they can hint at something, or it could even be personal. So it's always possible to get through it. Looking in New Zealand, that banks do offer ways for um, victims of family violence to set up another bank account that kind of isolates them and uh, and just gives sets them one step away. Maybe there's ways to do it, but it's very difficult at scale because you can't have human intervention. It's too slow. There's just the quantity of, of transactions going through with so many. It's it's like Facebook, you know, they can only look at the, the, the revelations recently. They only get to 3% of the cases and that's got, you know, they've got half the world in there. So it's an enormous problem of scale. And of course, the problem is false positives and negatives where they miss things. It's, it's I don't, I don't know. If I had the solution, I'd be a trillionaire. Well, I think when people launch products, they need to think through these use cases. Like it's kind of too late now. I'm still shocked when people launch different technology platforms that allow some sort of communication between people, whether it be text-based, image-based, video-based, or even sort of just nudges and behaviours that they don't think through these use cases. It should be at this point the most obvious and you should start with the worst use case and sort of design backwards from there. Mm. So it is good that these platforms are tackling this now. I think too, we shouldn't take out the human entirely. Like one important point when looking at this kind of technology is that there is somebody that someone can call at the bank to let them know this is happening. So if the behavior is uh, managing to sort of skate through all these machine learning detection systems, there should be a number with a human at the other end that somebody can get in touch with to start to tackle this issue as well. Download this show is what you are listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. And of course, Facebook have been in the news quite significantly over the last few weeks. One of the things they have announced is that they would be pausing the rollout or the development rather of an Instagram for kids, but it has put renewed attention on the relationship between children, minors, and Facebook and Instagram, and they've actually launched a range of new features, which I'm sure are in no way related to what's going on with their bad headlines. Peter, what have they announced that they're going to do? Yeah, Facebook Vice President of Global Affairs and incidentally former Deputy Prime Minister in the UK, Nick Clegg, announced uh, on CNN that Instagram will add new measures to encourage teenagers to take a break from the platform. He said, it will detect that a teenager is looking at the same content over and over. And if that content may not be conducive to their well-being, it will, he says, nudge them to look at other content. At the same time, as you said, they've they've uh, stopped the uh, development of Instagram Kids, and I mean that's another thing that I just don't think it would work anyway. And as you say, this is in the context of whistleblower Francis 
Haugen, who testified before US Congress that Instagram's own research showed that the platform has a negative effect on the mental health of young people. They found that Facebook makes millions of its users more angry, more confused, and more psychologically frail. This is their own internal research. So Instagram's particularly toxic, particularly for teen girls, as it tends to show them images of, you know, unattainable bodies that they see thin, sexy, you know, perfect skin. And of course, they've got the answer to that. And the answer is the ads that target these same girls. And it's, you know, it's from people who are purveying things like diets, makeup, plastic surgery. So they're kind of creating the problem or enhancing the problem and the solution, which actually makes money for them. So Clegg's description of the measures is pretty weak. You know, he's talking about a nudge and showing different content. It's it's really hardly going to protect these girls, I'm afraid. Well, it's it's probably fair to say that none of this stuff is a is a panacea, Ariel. But do you think it's the sort of tool that could actually be effective, even in the, in the small way, you know, as small as a nudge can be? Do you think it's a, a worthwhile addition to the service? Well, as Peter pointed out, like we, this is very light on detail. Whatever the nudge means, whatever the negative type of content that a, a teenager might be focusing on, how will they know the person is a teenager at all? What, how do mm. they define negative content? You know, there's a whole range of questions that need to be answered before we can properly assess the usefulness of this kind of tool. You know, it's really interesting diving into the Wall Street Journal's reporting on the internal research from Facebook. I thought it was quite interesting that Facebook's research showed a kind of social comparison difference between Instagram and Snapchat. Their own research found that social comparison, you know, how some, a teenage girl might be comparing herself to another person they're seeing on Instagram was worse on Instagram than Snapchat because Snapchat mm. was a bit more of jokey, you know, the filters that you get on Snapchat are like of animals and things like that rather than beauty enhancement and they also really keep the focus on the face rather than the whole body or a fitness routine or like a nutrition day on a plate. You know, there's a whole range of issues there um, that were really interesting. I I would note too, I guess, the nudge, I wonder about the nudge because (laughs) it's going to be, it's that name is going to stick, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the content is available. There is a way that the algorithm shapes somebody's experience. So if you are like looking or following a lot of fitness accounts, your kind of uh, search page will start to show similar content and you might sort of create a kind of focused experience around health and nutrition and body size. It can really lead to negative content very quickly. I don't know how they can get rid of that. That is just how the app works. And so I don't know if all the nudges in the world could keep um, somebody's experience from changing that much. Well, Francis Haugen, the whistleblower, said that when Facebook has to choose between profits and safety, they choose profit. So this is how they make money. They create the market and they learn a lot of they, – they show them – the material that they look at, that whatever gets their attention, they show more of. That's how their algorithm works. So people go down this rat hole. And then, of course, they've learned a lot about these customers. They then sell that to advertisers. So that's how they make money. And really, are they going to do something that harms that? It's hard to imagine. They make noises to say they're, they're doing it. But in fact, their internal research shows they hardly catch any of the material in English, let alone all of the other languages around the world where Facebook is huge. There's an interesting point here, and I think you alluded to it earlier, Aaron, and I want to come back to it, which is this idea that, you know, the platforms are different. The way we interact with them is different. That does have an impact. And 
I'm reflecting a little bit on something. You actually tweeted this a couple of days ago because you were scrolling around on, on TikTok and you were surprised at, at the different kind of content you were seeing on TikTok. Just for people that didn't follow you on Twitter, and they should, you should because you're great, <laughs> just take me back to that experience there. Yeah, so if you if you haven't ever downloaded TikTok, it, it's been talked about on this show many times, so I'm sure you're very familiar, but it's kind of a short-form video app and you have what's called a For You page there apps starts feeding you these short videos and you show more engagement by like lingering over a video watching it once watching it twice liking it maybe maybe following the creator and it starts to shape your experience much like that kind of instagram search page so basically um while i was on tiktok recently i guess i had shown more engagement or watched more content when it was served to me that was concerning fitness and nutrition there's a lot of you know fitness influences on the app a lot of people doing what's called day on a plate showing you what they eat in a day and i suppose my engagement's probably we're coming up to summer we you know we've all been in lockdown i'm thinking about fitness and nutrition for myself but it started to really show me what i felt was really risky content and content that i really immediately recognized having once been a teenage girl myself as pro anorexia content so these are content that glorifies extreme calorie restriction things like body checking where somebody stands in front of the camera and sort of displays parts of their body and just displays their thinness or their perceived lack of thinness Mm. really um, content that is immediately verifiable is risky kind of content that if you started watching it in a you know over and over could really start to kind of mess with your perception of yourself and it it did to me you know I'm no longer a teenage girl but I found myself lingering over this content because it was not only that it was visually striking but it came accompanied by music and this kind of the sort of stickiness of TikTok, I think, that kind of music image package. And so, you know, obviously these problems are not restricted to Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat. They come up on these emerging platforms like TikTok as well. It's hard. I I feel like we need to talk, of course, about that broader social issue of the pressure we put on girls full stop when it comes to the body. But it's amazing to see how that sort of social pressure manifests immediately on every piece of new technology. Yeah, and I also think one of the really curious parts of that that story is that because it is so targeted, because it's it's learning so much about you, I worry that the the prevalence of that content is is potentially invisible to parents or people who who aren't as susceptible to it. I mean, for 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 lack of a term, and that makes it harder to kind of police. It makes it harder to to kind of point out when things are inappropriate on the platform. Was there at least a function on that screen where you could say, hey, I'm not sure this is great content for people to be looking at? Was there, was there any kind of recourse for you as a user? Well, it's interesting. I, when I tweeted about it, people messaged me back being like, oh, I think about this all the time. I try not to linger on content so that, that the algorithm doesn't start shaping itself to that type of content. So I think people are kind of performing for the algorithm a bit too to sort of yeah. indicate to it that I don't want to see this stuff. So I actually tried to get rid of this body checking kind of content by scrolling really quickly past it to see if the <laughs> algorithm would sort of like And they know that. They, they can itself. see that, yeah. But the thing is it's still there though. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the the issue of content moderation on TikTok is a behemoth one because of the sheer volume, just like on YouTube before it, video content, we still don't quite have the best, most efficient tools for moderating video content, especially content that doesn't like have so much word to it, like Mm. all that content that is set to music or has text on the screen again becomes somewhat 
difficult. Well, in the life cycle of stories about research on the impact of technology on different sets of people, there's always kind of this cycle where somebody comes out with a study that says Instagram, TikTok is really bad for teenage girls. And that is indeed what Facebook's internal research said. So it's definitely a story. But now we're at the point of, in the cycle where the psychologists and people that study this issue come out and question that research. So I think it's not as clear-cut as I saw some pro-anorexia content on TikTok and now I'm on my way to becoming anorexic, you know, not to make light of that at all. But mm. there's a, it's a complicated set of issues and a complicated set of pressure on people. So we need to be cautious too about these kind of cause and effect studies as well. Mm. Download this show is the name of the program you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Peter Marks and Ariel Bogle. And very soon, many of us will have COVID vaccine certificates, but it seems they are highly susceptible to forgeries, Peter. Yeah, look, uh, we've already seen a bit of this. I mean, the simplest idea is to just mock up an image of whatever the pass is and uh, you know, have that on your phone. So, um, But even the system that we have, the Medicare app, has been cracked by uh, Richard Nelson, a software engineer in Sydney, who found a security hole in it that allowed him to make certificates with any name and date of birth on them. And we've also seen anti-vaxxers in the past who object even to checking in when shopping, and so they make up a fake, a fake image of the check-in confirmation screen. To be secure, I think, you know, these things need a QR code that's read by the person checking you in that goes back to, you know, Medicare or whatever and checks your status independently. Uh, we are able to do it securely. I mean, there's digital driver's licences in some states and they tend to have some sort of fancy animation that makes it, you know, move like a hologram when you tilt the phone. But even this for a developer can be emulated. But, you know, the big problem, of course, is that not everyone has a smartphone, so there will have to be paper certificates, and, of course, they're not too hard to mock up. So it's always going to be a problem. There will be some fakes in the system. By and large, Australians have been rather okay with the variety of things asked of them over the past few years. You know, checking in, locking down, all those things. There is a vocal minority that have publicised resistance to these kinds of measures. But I guess like the critique that comes from people that work in the cryptography space and the privacy space is all this technology just could be done better, safer and more privacy preserving. This was the kind, same kind of argument that was uh, sort of fought over last year over the COVID safe app. This technology doesn't have to be full of holes. And sure, the majority of Australians probably won't be exploiting those holes. But why not just make something better from the start? Mm. Uh, you know, there's a plenty of interesting models. I think a lot of people have pointed to the EU's digital COVID certificate, which uses a digital signature and a QR code, as sort of Peter was laying out there, to prove authenticity. But what is it, uh, people have pointed out is important about that model is it doesn't need to go back to check with the authority that generated the certificate. So the concern here is that state by state, there are a lot of different vaccine passport models being rolled out. The concern is that we're, again, connecting another thing to that COVID check-in regime. Now we're connecting the vaccine certificate to the check-in regime. It's just adding data point upon data point that we're sharing that may not need to be shared full stop if we design something better from the start. Mm. So, you know... My other concern is that each state is doing it slightly differently. Mm, like yes. having been this year to three places, I've been to Victoria, ACT and New South Wales. Every time I needed a new app, every time I had to figure out how to use some new digital product, why not one good, safe, private thing for the whole of Australia that 
hopefully would connect up with passports too in the case of international travel. As a software problem, this is one of these classic three-prong problems. You've got three attributes, ease of use, security and cheapness, and you can only choose two. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's it's one of those problems. Across Europe, though, you know, the EU seems to have this QR code system that works in 27 member nations. The UK has got the NHS COVID pass that, you know, accepted in 30 countries. In France, you have to show proof of vaccination and a, or a negative test. Israel's got the green pass. China's got a QR code that has colours indicating what you can do. And the US, well, they've ruled out vaccination passports everywhere except sensible California and New York City. (laughs) But, uh, yes, it'll be interesting to see how they go there. All right, well, I guess it will likely change and grow over time over the coming weeks. But that is all we've got time for on the program this week. Ariel Bogle from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, thanks so much for joining us back on Download This Show. Thank you. And Peter Marks, software developer with Access Informatics. Thanks so much for coming back on Download the Show. Cheers, Mark. Cheers, Ariel. And if you enjoyed the show, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to listen to us on. And with that, I shall leave you. My name's Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. Listener.